All right, we're in Genesis 15. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, open it up there. Before I start and as you're turning there, a couple things. Number one, thank you to Andy for preaching last week. Huge blessing uh, to have the week to go spend with the kids at Berea. And I've heard from several of you that that was a blessing to you. Secondly, that book club coming up, Delighting in the Trinity, that's on March 11th. Uh, that's just two weeks away. It's a short book, so that's enough time. We got one more over there if you want to grab it. One in the church library if you want to take that one. And then also membership on March 17th and 24th. We'd love for you guys to join. Those are the things that uh, are coming up. Um, one more thing. Uh, you guys gave so generously uh, for the church office that actually at this point, we have all the funds that we need to get the entire project done. So I just want to say a big thank you to you guys. Um, yeah, God provided so abundantly, not only to do the renovation, but also to cover the cost of the increased rent that we didn't have in the budget. So you've actually funded our rent for the entire year to come. So thank you guys so much for your generosity. Really blessed uh, by that. All right, Genesis 15. Let's turn our hearts and our attention there. So two years ago yesterday— we wouldn't know if Facebook didn't remind us. Uh, we brought our, our son home from the NICU. Uh, he spent three days in the NICU after he was born. He was a little bit premature. There were some birth complications, but one of the main things that they were really trying to keep their eyes on when he was in the NICU was the fact that when he was born, uh, his stomach was concaved. And they weren't sure why that was. Um, they thought that it could be that his intestines were up in his chest. And so that was something that we were obviously scared about, that that would have led to a lot of complications moving forward, surgeries moving forward. And, by, you know, by the grace of God, everything turned out okay. It turned out that he just emptied himself as he was leaving. Um, but it was scary for us in those first couple moments of his birth. And even for the for the days to come, as they were checking out other things, trying to figure out some of the complications. Why did things go the way they did? And so many people from our church and friends and family from around the country were praying for us, and we were posting on Facebook, updating people who were praying for us. And yesterday when we saw this post, you know, be, when we were reminded of this post through Facebook yesterday, um, this is what we wrote, Olivia and I, on our Facebook as people were praying, just to give them an update and to share what was happening in our own hearts and our own lives as we were walking through this process. We said, How can the peace of God be a peace that surpasses understanding, Philippians 4-7, if our God is not a God who surpasses understanding? Small God, small peace. Big God, big peace. Lord, grow our faith as you grow our understanding of who you are. And I remember that time in the, in the hospital, and uh, I remember the way that God was working through the, the fear of that time, the uncertainty of that time. And I wanted to read that post to you. Uh, we tend to think a little bit more clearly when we're in the valley, right? But I wanted to think that, read that, that, that post to you because I think it really helps illustrate something that's at the heart of our passage today. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 6, Abram, he's, he's basically having an honest conversation with God. It's a, it's a short conversation, but it's a profound conversation. It's a significant 
conversation. And like Abram, uh, we live our lives in an uncertain world somewhere between fear on the one hand and faith on the other, right? And like Abram, we live under the watchful eye and the tender care of a God who is not daunted by our troubles. A God who has never sat up there in heaven wringing his hands, wondering how everything's going to turn out, and we find so much hope in that. And so as we get into Genesis 15, 1 through 6, looking at this short chat between Abram and God, we get to see that we have a God who makes and will keep the promises that he makes to us and the hope that gives us while we're in our trials. So let's pause and let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, the truth uh, of who you are and the promises that you give us Give us a foundation to stand on as we live in a shaky world. Lord, I pray that as we look at Abraham and his example, uh, it would, (laughs) though his situation is very different than ours, though the thing that he fears may be very different than ours, I pray that his example would show us and would exhort us to imitate his faithfulness. God, we want to be more like you. We want to walk faithfully before you. May your word help us do that today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me bring you up to speed on where we're at in the book of Genesis right now. Abram has just rescued Lot from the four Mesopotamian kings. He returns home. He receives his blessing from this mysterious man named Melchizedek, the priest of Yahweh. He ties his spoils back to him, showing that this is the God that Abraham follows. He also refuses a blessing from another king, a king of Sodom, who encourages him to take the spoils, but he refuses to. In all of this, it shows us that Abram knows who gave him the victory in that battle. Abram knows that it is God who is giving him the provision he needs, who's giving him the protection he needs, and who's going to keep his promises. Genesis chapter 12, he made this promise to Abram. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But while we've seen God grow, as we've seen him grow his household, apparently last week we saw he had at least 318 grown men in his household, we can imagine that with every passing month, as time goes by, that it must be getting harder for him to believe that God is actually going to give him a son. A son from his own flesh and blood. A son born from the the womb of of his barren and aging wife. And so as he returns home, God comes to him again after this great victory. And this is what he says to him. Let's read Genesis 15, 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and 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 a member of my household will be my heir. All right, so he's he's asking the question that we would all be asking, I think, if we were in his his situation. But let's just notice what 
God says to Abram right there at the beginning. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. In other words, what he's doing is he's repeating the promise that he had already given Abram back in chapter 12. He says, I am your shield. That's the same thing as I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. He says here, your reward shall be very great. That's the same thing as what he said before. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so, because of all of that, Abram, fear not. Don't fear. And we know exactly what Abram's fearing. We can guess what Abram's fearing, but he says it really clearly. He's fearing what it says right here in the passage. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What he's fearing is that maybe God will not fulfill his promise to make him the great nation that he promised to make him. He's fearing that maybe that promise would not come to pass, that he wouldn't have an heir, that he wouldn't have someone who could inherit his house. He's worried about how all of, how all of this is going to work out. Or maybe just to say it another way, Abram is anxious. That's what anxiety is, right? Anxiety is a a future-focused fear. When we talk about being anxious, we're talking about fear of what the future may hold or fear of what the future may not hold. And anxiety is a major topic of conversation in our culture today. It's a big issue in our world today. A survey from 2023 from the U.S. Census Bureau, it found that one-third of all adults report anxiety and depression uh, symptoms, and that's just the people who are willing to check that box on a sheet of paper. When we look at a certain age group, the younger ages of 18 to 24, we find that half of people report symptoms of anxiety and depression. That's from the uh, U.S. Census Bureau. Here's another statistic. I'm making this one up. Um, 100% of people can relate to what Abram's going through here. Because I think that if I were given a survey saying, do you, like, are you anxious? Is that, uh, is that something you struggle with? I don't think I would check yes. I think that there's a, maybe a threshold that we in our minds come up with. Like, if you're this anxious, then yeah, I would check that box. But the reality is all of us can relate to what he's going through. All of us know what it's like to look into the future and to think to ourselves, I don't know how all of this is going to come together. We know what it's like to wring our hands. We know what it's like to have sleepless nights. I think one-third is actually remarkably low. 100% of people have experienced fear and anxiety in, in some form. And so fear is something, we have to remember, that God did give us for our protection. Fear is an alarm bell that goes off in our head to warn us that danger is at hand. It's not in and of itself a bad thing. I think that whether or not fear is a good thing or a bad thing comes down in large part to what we're fearing. It's okay to fear the Lord. In fact, it's a good thing to fear the Lord. But what this passage is showing us is that a future-focused fear, this anxiety of what the future might hold, is not a good thing. So here, God says to him, do not fear. Do not fear this situation. Do not fear, do not be anxious over what's going to happen with your inheritance. And I I imagine that no one in this room is unable to relate to Abram's future-focused fear, but I think that I can also guess that everyone in this room, given the choice, 
would banish future-focused fear from your life if you had the choice. There's nothing enjoyable about it. There's nothing we long for in anxiety. But we're going to look hard at God's answer, what he says to Abram here. But before we move on, let's not miss what Abram does. How does Abram respond to the anxiety he's feeling over his future-focused fear? What he does here is 100% right. He brings it to God. He does what Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your anxieties before, upon him because he cares for you. God wants us and wants Abram to take our fears, to take our anxieties, and to bring them to him. That's the right way to handle our anxieties. And so let's hold on to that. And I imagine that some of us in the room might be unsatisfied with the explanation already, but I want to encourage you, don't worry. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. Before that, though, I want to see how God answers. How does God answer Abram in Genesis 15? Join me in verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens. Number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In December of 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, was circling the Earth. It had already been in orbit about five years. And the scientists decided that what they wanted to do is they wanted to take this massively powerful uh, telescope and they wanted to point it at a little blank patch of sky, just a little patch of blackness, uh, a small patch of blackness. In fact, that patch is so small uh, that it would be the equivalent of, if I'm the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, Chaz back there in the back holding up a dime and me focusing in on that patch of sky. A really, really small portion. It's a fun idea. What would that send back? If you point the world's most powerful telescope into a patch of blankness, just a small patch of blankness, what will you find? Well, the picture it sent back, it didn't show a star or a nebula or a galaxy. It, it showed 1,500 galaxies with innumerable stars in them. It just, when we think about that, it absolutely blows your mind. You can go through the stats of, of, of what we know about space and just realize we don't even, we can't even begin to comprehend the incomprehensibility of space, right? It's beyond what we can wrap our minds around. And the more that science shows us, the more inconceivable it becomes, and the more inconceivable space becomes, the more indescribable the God who made it becomes to us. We see writers of the Bible wrestling over this all the way back in the ancient world. Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. The universal human truth is that when we come face to face with something big, it makes you feel small. They call this telescope the Hubble Space Telescope. I think they should call it the Humble Space Telescope because the more we see with each picture it's sent back, and we have more powerful ones now, it reminds us of just how small we are. 
just how insignificant. If you ever want to feel small and insignificant, look, look no further than up. Look at the stars. And, and I love this because Abram is doubting, he's, he's struggling, he's wrestling with this understandable anxiety. His wife has aged out. His wife has been barren her whole life. Humanly speaking, absolutely impossible for Abram to have kids, and yet God promises that he will, and then says, look at the stars. He doesn't just tell Abraham that he's going to keep his promises. He shows Abram a picture of what he alone is able to do. Look up, Abraham. Count the stars. You see what I mean? You can't do it. And that's the point. Just like you can't number the stars, so you won't be able to number your kids. And think about this for Abram. Abram lives in a place that's pretty dry and arid. There's not a ton of clouds. Abram lives at a time where there's no cities blasting light into the sky, dulling the blackness of the night. And so what that means is that most every single night for the rest of Abram's long life, all he has to do is look out, go outside and look up and be reminded that the God who placed the innumerable stars in the heavens is the same God who promised to give him innumerable descendants. And though God didn't tell him how he was going to make that happen, nor, unfortunately for him, did God tell him when he was going to make that happen, we read in verse 6, and I'll put it up here on the screen, that he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. We don't know how. I don't know when, God. But Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, anxiety as a whole is, is a topic that I'm a little bit anxious to talk about uh, in front of a group of people because I know that it burdens many of us deeply. Um, I don't want to just offer uh, trite cliches. I don't want to oversimplify the situations of our life, the things that we're anxious about, because let's be honest, some of the things we're anxious about are legitimate worries, and some of them aren't. Some of them are really big. Some of them are really small. And yet what we see here is Abram wrestling with a very legitimate worry. But what he models for us, and that the rest of the Bible teaches us, is that the only way to fight this future-focused fear, the only way for us to fight anxiety, is with faith. You know, let me unpack that just with three important points. When it comes to actually fighting our anxiety with faith, what does that look like? Well, number one, fighting fear with faith is not a fight is not to fight a feeling with another feeling. Fighting our fear with faith is to fight a feeling with a choice. This is something that Elizabeth Elliot says. She writes, Faith is not an instinct. It's certainly not a feeling. Feelings don't help much when you're in the lion's den or hanging on a wooden cross. Faith is an act of the will, a choice, based on the unbreakable word of a God who can not lie. Okay, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. Fighting fear with faith is not a, a fight of a feeling with another feeling. It's a fight between a feeling and a choice. Number two, fighting fear with faith is not a one-time fix. Like you've taken a faith pill and from then on you're good to go. That's not how it works. 
Just like anxiety is a low, slow, constant burn, so also fighting anxiety with faith, fear with faith, is a moment-to-moment battle that we have to choose every single day that we are going to step out of our tent and we're going to look up. We're going to remind ourselves of the promises that God has given us. And that brings us to the third one. Fighting fear with faith is only possible if there is something to have faith in. Fighting fear with faith is only possible if our faith has an object, something that we're actually holding on to. This is so important. Faith is not just white-knuckled willpower. As Scott Haifman says, faith is trusting God to do what he has promised. Because we are convinced by his provisions that God is both willing and able to keep his word. So Abram is able to fight fear with faith, not by sheer willpower on his own, but by clinging to the clear promises that God has given him. And remember this, that faith is not something that we have to muster on our own. That faith is a gift that's given to us by God. That God works in our heart to will and to work the faith into action, to help us take hold of the promises that God has given us. And so let me just make this personal here, paint a picture of what this looks like in practice. Going back to that time in the NICU, our future-focused fear, our anxiety was great, right? But the only way that we could fight our anxiety and to fight our fear is if we had a great God. Small God, small peace. Big God, big peace. Lord, grow our faith as you grow our understanding of who you are. But the promises we were clinging to, and this is really important, we weren't promised that Cal was going to be okay. That was not a promise we could cling to. That's not a promise God ever made to us. We weren't clinging to the fact that Cal was going to not need multiple surgeries. We weren't promised that either. We weren't promised that Cal would survive. We could not cling to those promises because those are promises God never made to us. But here are the promises we could cling to, and here's the promises that we did cling to. It's the promise that our God, our good God, would never leave us or forsake us. It's the promise that our sovereign God will work all things together for good. And if worst comes to worst, it's the promise that the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort is near to the brokenhearted. In that moment, we didn't care that those were cliches. They're cliches because they're true. We clung to them because they're all we had to cling to. By his help, he helped us cling to that truth, to find hope in our anxiety, to find peace. And yet, I do want to say that didn't take away the heartache. That didn't make it any easier to sleep on a couch in the hospital watching my son hooked up to tubes. We've all been in equivalent situations there. We've all been in places where, humanly speaking, there is no peace to be found. But it did bring a peace that surpasses understanding. It did because we knew that we were not abandoned, that the good God was with us, that he was in control, that he did not leave us, that he loved us. And that changes everything. And so what are you anxious about? 
It could be big. It could be small. It could be something that's likely to happen. It could be something that's very far-fetched, very unlikely to happen. What do you do in those moments? Well, my encouragement from this text is to do what Abram did. Number one, cast your anxieties on God. Bring them to him. Why? First Peter 5, because he cares for you. He wants to hear them. And then number two, find the promises that God has actually made to you. The promises from his word and cling to those promises. Write them on note cards. Stick them to your steering wheel. Pray them with your spouse, your friends. Bring them before the Lord until he's sick of hearing them because the good news be free is that he never will be. <laughs> He'll never grow tired of hearing your, your, your complaints and your requests. It's exactly what he wants. Verse 6, And he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, as we, as we come to the end of this passage, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to that final word, that word righteousness, because if you've been around the church for any period of time, you know it's an important word. It's a big bible word. It's a word that you don't hear much outside of the church, but really righteousness, if we're just going to boil it down to a very simple explanation, righteousness is to be right with God. That's all it means, to be right with God, to be in right standing with him. And every world religion has an idea of how to accomplish that, how to be in right standing before God. You maybe have to do a pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Or bathe in the Ganges, or spin enough prayer wheels, or do enough good deeds. But what Genesis 15, 6 shows us is that's not the way that people get right with the one true God. For the first time in our Bibles, we find here this radical and revolutionary idea spelled out crystal clearly. We do see it before, but we see it clearly here. That if we want to be right with God, what we need is not a ritual, not a ceremony, not enough good deeds. What we need is faith. We don't get right with God by putting our confidence in what we can do. Not in the Jewish faith, not in the Christian faith but by surrendering any confidence in ourselves and trusting in what God will do. Trusting in him and his promises. Because that's what Abraham does here. He trusts God. He believes in God. And God counts or imputes or reckons or supplies or gives credit for righteousness. And Abraham gets it exactly right with God. By faith alone— by trusting in his promises, God credits Abraham righteousness. He is right with God. The good news be free is that our God has not changed and he works the same way today with you and me. How do we get right with God? Well, first, we have to answer the question, what makes us wrong with God? What makes us wrong with God is our sin. The wickedness and the rebellion in us that, that separates us from God. But Jesus came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to carry our sin and to receive the punishment for us in our place. To take the words of Isaiah and Peter, by his wounds we are healed. Trading places, a substitute. We don't get right with God by putting our confidence in what we can do, but by surrendering any confidence in ourselves and trusting what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so as Paul says both in Romans 4, read before, and in Galatians 3, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, to, his faith is counted 
as righteousness. We get right with God by faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ alone. So what do we do with that? I think it really depends on where you're at right now in your relationship with the Lord. Just, so two, two encouragements then. One encouragement is for you if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you have not yet been made right with God by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And the other encouragement for you is if you have, if you've already trusted him. So first, if you haven't. Growing up, I, I grew up uh, next to um, a family, and uh, I used to play roller hockey in the street every day with them. And uh, later on, we moved on to ice hockey, and I, I remember uh, there was this one day where uh, my mom and my neighbor's dad were waiting in the ice rink lobby as me and my, my neighbors were getting changed in the locker room. And um, his name was Rick, and, and Rick had grown up kind of religious, but um, kind of had, dr- had drifted away from the faith and didn't really know where he stood. And my mom had the opportunity that day, ice rink, <laughs> waiting room, the opportunity came for her to share the gospel uh, with Rick. Share the gospel, uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, the, the full gospel to Rick. And Rick's response to my mom was, I don't know, Denise, that's, it's too easy. I think we're hardwired to believe that way, right? Surely there's more to it than that. Surely, um, surely nothing comes for free. <laughs> Every human religion has come up with this system to, to get our righteousness, some uh, list of labors, some list of works that have to be done. Nothing comes from free, for free, and and if that's where you're at, if that's where you are, I think that first thing I want to say is you're, you're actually right. Nothing does come for free, including our salvation. But the truth, is, but the, the reality is, and the good news is that the price was paid, but not by you. The good news is that because of the love of God, he sent his son to pay that price for you. By his blood shed for you on the cross, you are free. Your salvation isn't free. It's costly. But somebody else paid it. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Receive his righteousness. Be made right with God. If that's something that you haven't done, I would love to talk to you afterward. I'm sure the person who brought you today would love to talk to you as well. But if you have believed in this already, if this isn't new to you, if you've been walking faithfully with the Lord for years, there's a, I think there's a different takeaway to take from this passage. Because I think that we all know this to be true. Faith is the easiest thing in the world from a distance. <laughs> but it gets hard when it's viewed from up close, right? Faith actually requires dependence. And dependence requires us to admit our weaknesses— And admitting our weaknesses is a really hard thing to do. And so for those of us who have been made right with God by faith, my encouragement today is beware. Beware because the slope back to works-based salvation is a slippery one. This isn't a new problem, right? We can look back to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. Paul writes to the Galatians, and he said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? 
Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you and do so by works of the, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. You have been saved, Christian. You have been made righteous by grace through faith. And you are being kept by grace through faith. And so just as Abram kept his eyes on the stars, remembering God's promise to him, my encouragement to you, Christian, if you've been walking with him for months or for years, keep your eyes on the cross. Don't forget his grace. Don't forget that it is purely by faith. And let that lead you not to curry favor with God through your deeds, but to live lives spilling over in praise and in obedience. By grace through faith you are saved. By grace through faith you are sustained. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the good news of the gospel is that from beginning to end, you have done everything. That we are sinful, We deserve judgment, but because of your amazing radical love for us, you came, you sent your son to die for us, so that by faith in him and his sacrifice on the cross, in our place we can have life. And now, Lord, we live that life by faith. By faith we are righteous before you, accepted, right with you, guilt gone, shame gone fully free, perfectly yours. And because of that, we rejoice, Lord. Because of that, we sing back songs of praise. May our lives of faith both move us away from anxiety more and more as we trust you in all things. The God of all comfort and the God of all salvation. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.